Um, and it's, uh, it's been good to be together already, uh, to sing together. Uh, so thank you, worship team, for helping us with that. Uh, thankful that uh, as I get to I have this privilege of shepherding the church, that I get to do it with some faithful elders. Um, many of you know uh, Ron and Linda Allen. Ron is one of our elders. Uh, Linda, uh, a deaconess. They've been, Ron was the one up here praying last week. If you're newer to the church, you don't know all these names and stuff like that. Um, uh, but they've been a, a key part of this church's ministry since the 1980s. Um, and they are leaving tomorrow morning. Uh, for a parole hearing for their daughter Dawn, who has been in prison in Arkansas for the past almost eight years now. Between the time of her crime and incarceration, she lived up here for a bit, and so many of you got to know her uh, during that time. The plan is that when she is released, which the family is praying will be in the next month, um, that she will uh, come back to live here again. And so, um, knowing that Dawn is a sinner, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, um, one thing that has been encouraging to hear stories of is how throughout her time there, Dawn has frequently and boldly talked about Jesus to all sorts of other women in the prison and the staff there at the prison as well. And so I have no doubt that whether she remains in prison for a time or is released and comes back to Iowa Falls, Dawn will continue to talk about Jesus. When we left off in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was still a prisoner. He had been moved from Jerusalem 60 miles to the northwest to Caesarea, and he's awaiting trial. Back when Paul was a free man, he went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everywhere Paul went, Paul talked about Jesus. Now he's been a prisoner since about Acts chapter 21, or maybe it was before that. And as a prisoner, while Paul's travel is limited, he can't travel the way he used to as a missionary, one thing has remained true about Paul. Wherever he's at and whatever his circumstances are, Paul continues to talk about Jesus. And so today we're looking at Acts chapter 24, and we're going to hear three charges leveled against Paul. We're going to hear Paul's defense. And as we wait for a verdict, we'll notice this about Paul. He just keeps talking about Jesus. And the message for us today from this passage, I think, is this. Whatever the circumstance and the cost, we should take advantage of opportunities to talk respectfully, relentlessly, and relevantly about Jesus. So, uh, it's a longer passage, uh, but I think what God's Word says is more important than anything I have to say about it, and so we're going to read all of it. And so if you're able to, would you stand and we'll read Acts chapter 24. This is the Word of God. Let's, let's pray first. God, we need your help uh, even now as, as we just have this great privilege, many of us holding in our hands a copy of, of your word, seeing on a screen in front of us a copy of your word. We've got access to it uh, like many throughout history have never had. And so, God, I pray that your word, as your spirit works through it and in us, would have its intended effect, uh, that you would 
you would mold us according to your word, not just individually, but all together as a people. That you would motivate us to be people who will make disciples by just talking a lot about Jesus. Help us to see that here in this passage and then to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word from Acts chapter 24 says this, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to to make this accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. You can be seated. So we put inside the bulletin a sermon notes page if you like to take notes while you listen. There's also a life group guide. Many of our people gather together throughout the week. We don't want to just hear the word. We want to work on applying it. Our life groups help us with that, all led by elders along with 
uh, Jeff Beath as well. So you'll see a couple of points in there today. The first is, I'm just following the outline of the text. First, we see an accusation. I I read the entire thing right now um, so that you could hear it all. I'm going to just highlight a couple of things out of it uh, as we walk through. You'll note as we start verses 1 through 9, we're going to hear an accusation that, remember, it's about a 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Paul, remember, because there was a threat against his life, remember how he got there? 470 soldiers, 70 of them horsemen, that accompanied him to Caesarea. And it, so he got there really quickly. It only took two days. Well, he was wait, they were waiting. He had been uh, sent on to the governor uh, that was there in Caesarea. So he's waiting to talk to the governor, but had to wait for his accusers to arrive. Now what's happening at the beginning of chapter 24 is the accusers have now Arrived. It took them five days to get there, but now they're there, and it's, re- it's time for the trial to begin. This trial before the governor named Felix. So along with them, the leaders from Jerusalem brought a man named Tertullus as their spokesman. You could really see it as like a prosecuting attorney, right? So he's, he's got the skills in the law, knowing how to talk to the Romans in such a way to make Paul look guilty, right? That's their goal. And so he brings about these charges. We really see the charges, verses 3 and 4, are just pure flattery. Did you hear? I mean, I kind of read them. Like they, but verses 3 and 4, just, like, he just goes on and on. Like, oh, you're, kind, like, oh, you're so... So he's kind of buttering up. The prosecuting attorney is buttering up the governor. Uh, and then we get the charges finally after all the flattery in verse 5. He says this, For we have found this man a plague. So he refers to Paul the defendant here, as a plague. Here's the charges against him, three of them. One, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Okay, that's charge number one. Two, is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Okay, what's that about? What's, what does it mean he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes? What they see right now is they see Christianity not as a new religion founded on Jesus the Lord, risen from the dead, but they see Christianity as some heresy, some offshoot, some sect of Judaism, and they want to squash it, right? So he's just like, he's a, and Jesus was from Nazareth, so there's, I don't know, some sect of the Nazarene, he's like the ringleader or something, right? So, so that's charge number two. And then charge number three comes in verse six. It's this. He even tried to profane the temple. So, so the first one, you know, this, uh, he's stirring up riots everywhere he goes. That would be uh, unsettling to a Roman official. Him profaning the temple, that would be unsettling to the Jewish people in the area. And the Romans didn't want the Jewish people to be unsettled because then, then there's, you know, all of that kind of stuff could happen. So that's really the accusation. That we see in verses 1 through 9. Three charges leveled against Paul. So now we want to know, okay, well what's the governor going to say? Because so far, when people have heard Paul's case, they're like, I don't think he's guilty of anything. What's this governor going to say? Well, before we get to hear what the governor is going to say, Paul is allowed to make a defense. So we've heard from the prosecution, now we're going to hear Paul make a defense. And as is his custom... Paul will use any opportunity to speak to people as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. He's not just seeing this as like, oh, here's my defense. He seems like, hey, there's people. 
I can talk about Jesus, right? So we're going to see Paul do that in verses 10 through 21. Now, he addresses the governor not with long sentences of flattery, but with respect. He, he respects the governor's authority. Look at it in verse 10. It says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So he's not, you know, trying to flatter the guy. He's just acknowledging you've been put in a position of authority. For many years you've been a judge over this nation, and so I bring this before you. Here's my defense. And then he's going to respond to the three charges. Remember, charge number one is he stirs up riots among the Jews everywhere he goes around the world. Can't stop this guy. He's nuts. Right? What's his response to that? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. He just points out, well, here's the facts. It's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So his response to charge number one is not guilty. Were there riots that ensued? Yeah, but that came when the Jews from Asia came and stirred everybody up. Paul wasn't the one stirring up the crowd. He was just proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Others came and stirred up the crowd and started riots. Paul's like, you don't even have any evidence against me. Charge number one, not guilty. All right, now let's move on. Charge number two was was that he was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. What does Paul have to say about that? Well, here he doesn't really say not guilty. He he just kind of corrects them a bit. Like you call it a sect. We call it the way. Okay, we call it the way. So we see that in verse 14. But this I confess to you according to the way, which they call a sect. And then he just starts listing off. Here, here's what I really do. Like they call me like kind of basically a cult leader. I'm not a cult leader. I worship the God of our fathers. Right? I believe everything written down in the law and the prophets. He's just saying, I, I, bas- I have the same religious roots as them. And I see all of their scriptures pointing ahead to Jesus. And so I'm just proclaiming Jesus to people. That's what Paul is doing. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul's saying, well, I mean, you call me a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, basically, I come from the same religious roots as them, and I'm just taking all of their scriptures and applying them and seeing that this all points to Jesus. So I guess, I mean, if you want to call me guilty of that, I guess I'm guilty. But then verse, charge three. Charge three was that he tried to profane the temple. And so Paul addresses this in verses 17 to 21, saying, you know, after several years, all these missionary journeys, I, I got here, I got to Jerusalem, and, and I brought alms, presented offerings. Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And then, then he kind of goes on a little aside. He's like, well, I, like, I was purified in the temple. So I was doing everything the way they wanted me to do it. I, and then, it wasn't me, but these Jews from Asia came. And then he's looking around. He's like, wait, they're not even here. Right? So the way a trial would normally happen is those that were accusing you should be there at the trial to accuse. He's like, they're not even here. The ones that, the ones that are, are really guilty, the ones that are accusing me, they're not even here and so kind of goes on a little aside about that and then he confesses well I guess I mean one thing that I did when I was put before their council 
And you might remember, this was when uh, Pastor Rich Church, our missions partner, was here preaching on this passage. He's before the council, and he brings up the resurrection of the dead, knowing that out in the council, there are Pharisees who believe in the resurrection of the dead, and Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So all of a sudden, they start arguing with each other, right? And so Paul confesses, like, well, I did that. I mean, but that's at the heart of our religion, isn't it? That's at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, believing in the resurrection of the dead. Paul makes that clear in some of his other letters. We worship a risen Savior. He is our Lord. So he says at verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day, referring back to that time where he stood before the council. All right. So we've heard the accusation. We've heard, you know, three charges leveled against Paul. We've heard Paul's response to them. And one thing I think you probably notice in all of this is that throughout his defense, Paul has, has found ways to talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of everything the law and the prophets was pointing to. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead and all of these kinds of things. All right. So we've heard the accusation. We've heard the defense. What's the verdict? Right? That's what comes next, right? Prosecution, defense, Verdict. What, what, what's the verdict going to be? What's the governor going to say? Well, here's some good news. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Okay, so, so he's talking to a governor who's not oblivious to, to this new way, Christianity, right? That's good. And he put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So the verdict is, well, no verdict just yet. We're going to do it later when Lysias the Tribune comes down. And then he gives orders to the centurion that, this is verse 23, that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So the good news is Paul, who has been in danger of being killed by mobs who are angry at him, is going to be in basically protective custody of the Romans with some freedom, like his friends can come and go. But the bad news is, Paul's a missionary, and the Lord has promised that he can go to Rome. So the tension is still, well, how is Paul the prisoner in Caesarea, many, many miles from Rome, going to actually get to Rome? He wants to bring the gospel there, and how's he going to get there if he's stuck in prison here? All right, so he's stuck in protective custody. What's Paul going to do? You know the answer. He's going to talk about Jesus. Like, well, I'm stuck here. Well, am I going to kind of whine and complain about it? Or do I just find an opportunity to talk about Jesus? And guess what? God gives him opportunities to talk about Jesus. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. So here's some good news: the governor's wife is Jewish, and so is Paul. Oh, good! They have something in common, right? This could be good. And here's some more good news: and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, the governor is inviting his prisoner to come and talk to him and his wife about Jesus. And when Paul has an opportunity to talk to the governor and his wife, rather than appealing his case, what's he doing? He's talking about Jesus. That's good news. 
And then Paul, I think this is good news too, Paul's very straightforward. Look at verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, right? This is necessary. If you're going to share the gospel with people, you need to talk to them about righteousness and sins like lacking self-control. You need to talk to them about the coming judgment. So Paul is being very straightforward, but here's where the bad news starts. Paul's very relevantly sharing the gospel with these people, but they don't like it. Look at the end of verse 25. The end of verse 25 says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Why does Felix send? Felix, who seems to be curious about faith in Jesus, he's invited Paul the prisoner to come and testify to him. But as soon as Paul starts talking about what? Righteousness? Self-control and the coming judgment? He's like, yeah, no. You go back and I'll call you when I need you. If you read a little bit of history, you would find out that Felix's wife, Drusilla, is the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. And she was previously married to someone else until the governor, Felix, kind of wooed her away, and it was a scandal uh, in the eyes of most of the people around there. And so Paul is being pretty relevant as he shares the gospel with this couple. He's not just telling them about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. He's also talking to them about their sin. He's talking to them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And so you see how as Paul relevantly shares the gospel, too personally for them, they get alarmed like, hey, why don't you go back over there? We'll call you when we're ready. And also, I mean, it's just uglier as he goes on, verse 26, he wants a bribe. That's part of why he's holding Paul. Like, well, maybe he'll give me some money. I mean, he came with Jerusalem. To, he came to Jerusalem with a big offering. He's got some sources. He can get some money. Maybe he'll give me some money, right? Verse 27. This is sad. Listen to this. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So the verdict is, no verdict. We're just going to hold you on these charges for a couple of years. Why? Well, because of political pressure. I'm supposed to govern these Jewish people. I think they'll like it if I hold on to you. Not going to be good if I let you go. Not going to be So how about I just hold on to you? So here Paul sits for two more years while the governor plays politics. Paul remains a prisoner. <laughs> but just so we don't miss it, Paul, Paul's not, you know, putting out lots of protest. What he's doing, look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. But listen, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Take a guess as to what some of those conversations might have been about. Maybe Jesus, huh? Right? I mean, that, that's what we've seen. That's the pattern from Paul, that anytime Paul has a chance to talk to people about Jesus, he's going to do it. So he's got... Two years 
of relational evangelism with the governor as he's held in protective custody and protected from angry mobs. Okay, so, so Paul looking for and seeing opportunities to talk about Jesus. You may have picked up on it as I was walking through, but, but not only do we see Paul talking about Jesus, but we learn a little bit about how Paul talked about Jesus in this passage. And uh, sort of cutely, I have all of them starting with the letter R. These are just observations I made. And one, I would have had a different letter. I would have said personally instead of relevantly. But I was already on this track of like they all start with R, so I stuck with relevantly instead of personally. But three ways that Paul is talking about Jesus. He's talking about him respectfully. I love that he, he respects the governor in his position. We saw that back in verse 10, remember? I love that Paul is talking about him re- relentlessly. Over and over and over again, we see Paul, given an opportunity to defend himself, what does he do? He talks about Jesus. Paul recalls how earlier in verse 21, he's referring back, well, they gave me a chance before the council, and I talked about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then as Paul is held, and he has all these opportunities to talk to Felix the governor and his wife Drusilla, what does Paul talk about? Jesus. So relentlessly, and then also relevantly, I I just talked about this, right? Personally, he gets personal with this. He's not just telling the story of the gospel. He's telling the story of the gospel to sinners who are in need of repenting and trusting in Jesus. He's talking to people who are not righteous and who have lacked self-control and who are facing the coming judgment of Jesus the King if they don't repent. And so, application for us. Here's what, what I, I don't like doing. I don't like looking at a passage like this. This is a narrative, and so there's not a lot of commands for believers in this. There's just things that we notice, and then they, so, so as, I, as I struggle in my office during the week, okay, what's the application from this? I mean, we could, I could tell you what happened, but, but we want to be people who not just hear the word, but we trust that God's word is useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What, what's useful for us in this? Well, I think one thing is to look at Paul and say, what did Paul do? do? Well, he talked about Jesus. What should we do? Talk about Jesus. And I know the first reaction to that is, well, I'm not Paul. Like, I can't reason like him. I can't talk like him. I can't write like him. Like, I don't even know what to say in a normal conversation, let alone if you put me before the governor and all these people who want to see me dead. You think I'm going to know what to say in that, like, I, I struggle, you know, to know what to say to the person at Fairway when I walk through the line. So how am I supposed to talk about Jesus like Paul talks about Jesus? So I get that because I'm, I'm with you. I find it easy to talk about Jesus when people expect me to talk about Jesus. When I'm standing on a stage and I have a microphone strapped to my head, you expect me to talk about Jesus so I can talk about Jesus. When, when I come to your house and you're struggling with something, you expect me to point you to Jesus. So I have no problem pointing you to Jesus. When we're sitting in my same thing, right? When people don't expect me to talk about Jesus, which is the situation most of you are in most of the time, people at your workplace, people in your home maybe, people in your neighborhood, people you're, like, they don't expect you to talk about Jesus. Man, if God would help us to be more like Paul and talk about Jesus, and I think like Paul... One thing we could learn is to do it respectfully, relentlessly, and relevantly. And as I was reflecting on that, 
It took me to uh, one other passage. I just want to look at two more verses. If you want to go ahead and flip in your Bible, you flip towards the end a little bit as we go to 1 Peter chapter 3. So this letter, sometimes the letters are named by who they're written to, and sometimes the letters are named by who wrote them. In this case, this is named by who wrote the letter. This is Peter, disciple of Jesus, who wrote this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, every word of it. And I want to look at just two verses that I think really show the same things we saw here in Acts 24 and take them in the form of a commandment to believers. Here's how, here's what we are to do, and here's how we are to do it. As believers, let me just summarize it really quick. As believers, we are to talk to people about Jesus and to do it respectfully, relentlessly, and relevantly. And I think we see that in these two verses. So let's look at 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15. First, let's just read the whole thing. Two verses. It says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, three ways we are to talk about Jesus according to this passage, which I think we see modeled by Paul in Acts chapter 24, are this, respectfully. You see that in this passage? Right at the very end there. We're to always be ready to give a, a reason for the hope we have. We, we, and the reason for it's Jesus, right? And do you notice those, like he has to add that at the end? I don't think it's probably, uh, I think it's from experience that Peter, who often put his foot in his mouth, would have to add this tagline onto the end. Oh yeah, and if you do it, do it with gentleness and respect. Because Peter hasn't always been that way, Right? But as we talk about Jesus, we should do so with gentleness and respect. In a world that is increasingly polarized, where a lot of people just yell at each other all the time, and they're really pretty mean to each other and disrespectful to people who disagree with them, man, it would be great if we as believers could talk to people about Jesus, even if they disagree with us, but to do it with gentleness and respect. Secondly, relentlessly. I see that in verse 14, where it starts out, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right? Paul was in a situation where his, his fate kind of hung in the balance, and these people were holding on to the reins. And Peter is saying to believers like us, don't have don't be, don't be troubled. Have no fear of them. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, here's what you're to do. Be prepared to, have, to share a reason for the hope that you have. So whatever the circumstance and cost. You know, maybe Paul would have been like treated a little better if he let up on the Jesus stuff just a little bit. Right? But he didn't. In some places in the world, right now, it is risky to relentlessly talk about Jesus. That's the reality. For many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, for them to relentlessly talk about Jesus comes with a significant cost. For us, in the United States of America in the year 2022, it's not super risky most of the time. People might look at you funny. But whatever the circumstance or cost, let's talk about Jesus. And then finally, relevantly. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason to hope that is in you. Like, we share Jesus not just like, here's a cookie-cutter presentation that I always share with people. You usually think of the opportunities that I had, like, after they're gone, right? Like, like somebody says something, and at that moment, you're just like, I'm not ready at that moment. And then I can walk away from that moment and think, man, they just opened the door. Why? Like, and I just, like, looked inside and, and walked. Like, I could have walked right through that door. Like, they, God provided an opportunity, and I missed it. But Peter commands always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You can talk about that in your life group a little bit this week. What does it look like for us in our situations to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have? One final point of application, because I don't want to walk out of here without the gospel being clear, and I want to lead us into a time of taking communion together. Paul's message about Jesus was specific. He said lots of stuff. But three things I want to point out that Paul shared, and again, they all start with R, is this. Righteousness, resurrection, and repentance. Righteousness, resurrection, and repentance. I want you to hear me clearly today. As Paul talked about those things, so I want to address you with those things as well righteousness. The truth is, none of us are righteous before God on our own. God is righteous, but we're not righteous. We have rebelled, disobeyed, rebelled against God, and we can't like work our way towards righteousness because we are unrighteous before God. The good news is, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. And at the heart of the gospel is this truth that the righteousness of Jesus can be imputed to us or his righteousness credited to our account. Where our account has us guilty before God, Jesus is perfectly righteous before God the Father and his righteousness can be credited to our account through union with him, identification with him by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So righteousness... Paul talked to Felix and Drusilla about righteousness. Also, resurrection. Paul talked to everybody about resurrection. And we believe this, that Jesus lived the life we failed to live, and he died the death we deserved to die. And Jesus really died, and he was really buried in a tomb, and he really rose from the dead. And we really believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we really believe that the wages of sin is death. But we also believe that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have that assurance because Jesus rose from the dead with victory over sin and death. So that all who are united to him by faith are also raised from the dead. So we need to talk about righteousness, resurrection. I want you today to hear about righteousness and resurrection and then finally repentance. The good news is that as we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, we experience eternal life and not eternal punishment. Now, let me just, let me just talk frankly with you, as Paul would with Felix and Drusilla. 
Maybe you're not living a life that looks utterly evil. Probably not compared to some other people, right? I mean, you look at the news, look at Putin. Man, that man's evil. I'm not like that. And so we can always compare ourselves to somebody worse than us. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time because, like Felix, you're curious. And it's not even like you're, you feel like, I have to. It's just like, well, I kind of enjoy it. I kind of like the sermons sometimes. I kind of like when, when people are singing together. I kind of like like the, the, just the friendliness of the people. There's all sorts of things that might draw you, just like Felix was drawn to ask Paul, come and talk to me more about this. There's something about Felix, something about Paul that drew Felix to him. There's maybe something about the church that kind of draws you in. And that's fine. But what we want and what God wants is much more than your curiosity or your enjoyment of church life. What God wants, what I want, is to have you recognize how utterly sinful you are before God. Recognize your unrighteousness and recognize that your only hope is Jesus and his perfect righteousness being imputed to you, coming to you by faith. Some of you have been doing church stuff for years. You've been coming, but never committing. So what step do you need to take? For some of you, maybe that step is just trusting in Jesus. You've been curious enough, and you've enjoyed things enough that you've been around, but you've never acknowledged your sin before God and given your life over to Jesus and say, I'm yours. Maybe today is the day that you need to do that. Maybe, maybe you've done that and you've never publicly identified with Jesus through baptism. Let's talk about that. Maybe that's the step you need to take. Maybe you keep coming, but you're, you're a believer, but you've never committed yourself as a member of the church. Maybe that's the next step you need to take. But we take steps of obedience in response to Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law and submitted himself fully to the Father in his plan. So I say all of that to call us to personally respond. And one of the ways that, that Jesus calls us to personally respond to the work and to remember the work that he has done is by taking communion. Communion is a personal response and it is a, a calling to mind, a remembering something that has happened. When we take communion, we are, we are taking the bread and remembering the body of Christ broken for us. We are taking the cup and remembering the blood of Christ shed for us. This is the only way that unrighteous people like you and I can be made righteous. Not by taking the bread and drinking the cup, but by remembering what the bread and the cup symbolize. And so that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then when I get done, I'm not going to say amen I'm just going to leave it silent for a while, and I want you to use that time of silence to pray on your own before God, asking Him to reveal sin in you, and confessing that to Him, and giving Him thanks for what Christ has done. This is what prepares our hearts to take communion. And so let's pray together now, and again, when I'm done, I will leave it silent for a moment for you to pray individually as well. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of people like Paul and people like we can all think of. Maybe it was our own parents. Maybe it was a number of other people in a church. Maybe it was somebody we ran into at college who faithfully talked about Jesus with us. I thank you for the example we have of Paul here in Acts 24. I thank you for the commands you gave through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter. And I pray that more and more we would be a church that just with one another and with others, when people expect it and when they don't, but always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, that we would talk to people relentlessly, that we would talk to them respectfully, that we would talk to them relevantly, that we would talk to them about righteousness, that we would talk to them about the resurrection. God, would you help us in that? Because it's hard. As we come now before you confessing sin, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal that to us. Sins that, that we know that you've, you've commanded us to do something and we've failed to do it. Times when you have commanded us not to do something and we've done it anyway. So be at work in us even as we come before you now, preparing our hearts to take communion by confessing sin to you.